Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Rachel Balkovec is making history this 2021 season as the first woman hired by a Major League Baseball team to work as a full-time hitting coach. Balkovec currently serves as a minor league hitting coach for the New York Yankees and has worked in professional baseball for seven years. Breaking through in 2014, she was hired as the minor league strength and conditioning coordinator for the St. Louis Cardinals, the first woman to hold that position in professional baseball. A year later, she became the Latin American strength and conditioning coordinator for the Houston Astros. Balkovec is a former NCAA Division I softball catcher who earned two master's degrees in sports performance and human movement and has completed five baseball internships. Rachel, I'm so excited to welcome you to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's an honor. I have to acknowledge right away that we are recording this episode in the midst of spring training. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I know you're very <laughs> <Yeah>. busy. <laughs> well, uh, not thankfully, but thankfully for the sake of this podcast, uh, minor league camp was pushed back by a month. So I am starting camp tomorrow. That's so exciting. When I initially reached out to you to invite you on the podcast, you were in Australia, and I do want to discuss that more and some of your travels in a bit, but I have to ask, how are things going so far this year? It seems that spring training is a bit more normal than it was last year. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, and again, Major League Camp happened this month. Minor League Camp is just starting, but um, it's actually a little bit more normal but also it's it's still way different because the players are going to be coming in small groups, which our coaches, we're all talking about how we love it because spring training is usually just so many people, so many players, and it's really hard to get quality work done with the amount of uh, players that are there. And so it's mm -hmm. kind of been nice um, to have the players staggered and uh, definitely looking forward to getting a little bit more one-on-one -on -one time with some of the guys. Excellent. And before we move forward, I want to go back to where it all started in Omaha, Nebraska, where you were born and raised. Mm -hmm. So I understand mm -hmm. you're one of three sisters. Your father mm -hmm. was an American Airlines customer service manager and your mother was a bookkeeper. And I read that your father missed just three days of work in 35 years and that your mother went back to work as soon as the youngest started school. So can you describe yeah. what it was like for you growing up and what kind of values were instilled in you at a young age that you still carry with you today? Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, my parents, beyond beyond that, so those were their careers, but my parents both grew up, I would say, in pretty impoverished um, areas and were just really blue collar. You know, they were very, they were living a bit in poverty growing up, I think, and, and um, my mom in a small farm town outside of Omaha and my dad in a not so great part of town. And my grandparents were factory workers. I think all of them actually were factory workers, both grandma and grandpa. And 
my dad worked in a factory with his dad until he was 18. And then he decided he wanted to go to college. So he didn't have to work in a factory anymore. And so, and my mom, you know, she left the small farm town and went to school in the big city and they both are self-made people, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely like outdid themselves, if you will, based on their upbringing and their opportunities. And so those are, you know, that's who raised us. Like they're definitely like the underdogs and people who are just have scrapped for everything they've gotten and they passed on their work ethic and their grit to all three of us. And, you know, I might be the one in the headlines, but my sisters are also, you know, very much of the same breed. That's awesome. Thanks for painting such a vivid picture. And I give a lot of credit to your parents. And mm-hmm. I'm actually one of four girls. And growing up with a bunch of sisters can also be a character builder. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think just to add to that, I want to, I think that also for the sake of this particular podcast, mm-hmm. uh, my mom and dad, a little bit more specifically, my mom and dad definitely put it in us that we could do anything with hard work and so it wasn't the dreamy esoteric well you can do anything honey it was like oh you want to do that no problem you're just going to have to work hard and you know earn it and my dad raised us to be capable I can never remember a time where either of them said well you're a girl you shouldn't do that or Mm -hmm. only boys do that or you're a girl you should do this this is how you should dress literally never could I remember a time like that And I think it just speaks to how my career has turned out. And part of the reason why I even applied for jobs is because I was so naive. I had no idea that I would ever have a problem with my gender. And that was because of my parents. I do have a question to ask you about applying to jobs. But before I get to that, Omaha is a big baseball town. It's home to Mm -hmm. the College Baseball World Series. So when you were growing up in baseball mecca, do you think that contributed to your desire to work in professional baseball? You know, actually, no. Um, I definitely was a College World Series. I, I wouldn't even say I'm a baseball fan. I was a College World Series fan. Whoever showed up to the College World Series, we picked the underdog and root for them. Um, but Nebraska was really in it, and we didn't have a professional baseball team. The closest team was the Royals. And realistically, women's sports were – starting to get on television when I was growing up. And so I was watching college softball on TV. So I actually was able to watch women who are playing my sport on television, which was an incredible opportunity. And I kind of, you know, I like what didn't really pay that close of attention to baseball until I got to college. And then some of the baseball players, we were friends with the baseball players. Some of the baseball players uh, were getting drafted. And I started to learn more about the minor league system Mm-hmm. And I really got interested in professional baseball from, from a career standpoint, not being a baseball fan per se. Of course, I played softball, but I wasn't mm-hmm. a baseball fan in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. So now I want to go back to talking about when you were applying to positions, because it's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I've heard Yankees hitting coordinator Dylan Lawson describe you as qualified or overqualified as anyone in your position, which I think speaks volumes. Yet when you were applying to jobs in Major League Baseball, you found that you were being overlooked. So you made tweaks to your resume. Can you explain Mm -hmm. to our listeners what you did and how that changed the responses you received? Yeah, the tweaks to my resume. Um, (laughs) So basically, uh, I, I guess like the context is leading up to the point where this actually happened when I changed my name on my resume to appear like a man. Um, what had happened the year prior is, is pretty important to understand. So basically I had moved to Phoenix and applied for 
probably eight to 10 baseball jobs and Phoenix, Arizona houses 15 of the major league baseball teams. So for listeners who don't, don't understand baseball very well, uh, professional baseball, the he- everyone's headquarters are either in Phoenix or in Florida. Mm-hmm. And so the headquarters for 15 of the major league baseball teams are in Phoenix. So basically I moved to Phoenix and there were all, there's all this job opportunity. And I, at that point, by the way, it had, four internships, including two years at LSU as a graduate assistant strength conditioning coach. Mm-hmm. So I had this wonderful resume for a young person and I was applying for internships and I just heard nothing back at all. And I just said, you know, wow, that's weird, but I guess I just have to, you know, work harder. So finally, actually during spring training that year, this was 2013, one of the teams did call me uh, based off of my application and said, hey, uh, one of our guys quit and we need somebody really quickly. Are you local? I said, yes. So I interviewed, met, met up with the, the guy, then did a phone interview. And he said, you know, we'd really like to hire you. You're the right person. I was like, great. He was like, okay, so I'll call you tomorrow. We'll do the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Well, I never heard from him. Then a few weeks later, he called me, you know, weeks later after he said he would call me the next day and said, hey, um, you know, I'm really sorry to be the bear of bad news, but we can't hire you. And it's because of your gender. And imagine my surprise. I was pretty shocked. And I thought, well, that's illegal. That's weird to say that, you know, yeah. out loud. Mm-hmm. And he said, I just wanted to let you know, because I want to let you know what you're up against, because not only can we not hire you, but I called around to try to help you find another job because he knew there were positions open. Mm-hmm. And all the other teams also said the same thing, that they wouldn't be able to hire you. So I kind of was, again, that naivete that I mentioned with my parents developing us and just, you know, having belief in ourselves. Um, I was no longer naive. I knew what was going on, right? And so basically that next year, so I set out that year of baseball. I waitressed full-time, and I worked part-time at Arizona State Mm -hmm. uh, working with their baseball and softball teams as an intern. Um, coming around, I just decided that I was going to change my name on my resume because I was so desperate. So you have to understand, I didn't just change my name in the first place. I changed my name because I was experiencing blatant gender discrimination. And I thought, well, maybe if I change my name, they'll actually look at my resume, Mm -hmm. (laughs) first of all, because I thought they were just seeing my name and passing right by it. Mm -hmm. And then, and then second of all, that they might just, you know, give me a call and hear me out. Well, it worked, you know, and I did get a call and basically, you know, he said, he said, oh, I'm looking for Ray. And I said, Oh, this is he. And he was like, you know, the surprise was obvious. Mm-hmm. So that, that call was super awkward. And um, also like other teams were responding very quickly to my resume and, and my mm-hmm. emails. And so I just, it was honestly pretty short lived that I had my name like that because I just felt, so bad and I just felt mm-hmm. not good about it and just thought okay at the end of the day I'm just in a state of desperation like this isn't actually going to work because they're still going to you know they're still not going to be able to hire me mm-hmm. so I changed it back and thankfully really late in that off season I had already planned on sitting out another year and going and doing another internship in Boston and thankfully the Cardinals reached out I'd already been an intern for them and they reached out for me to be full-time with them and here we are so yeah, I'm super grateful for the Cardinals for finally taking the leap and hiring me full time. But still a very interesting experiment that you were able to conduct. And aside from changing your name from Rachel to Ray, correct me if I'm wrong, but you made all of your positions, even your athletic uh, accomplishments, 
gender neutral. So for example, instead of saying yeah. softball catcher, you just put down that you were a division one catcher. Yes, which is true. You know, right. so I kind of, of course, still try to keep everything true, except for my name. And then I even changed my name on Facebook. Like I made it kind of a nickname, if you will. Because mm-hmm. I was like, well, what if they think I'm lying? You know, I had to like basically pretend like it was my nickname so I could be like, well, what? It's my nickname, you know? So I kind of, yeah, it was a tough time. Yeah. But I think that what that did was really just spell out on paper who you are as a person, not a man or a woman, but as a professional, as an individual. Um, right. And following Dylan Lawson's sentiment that I shared earlier, I want to unpack several things, starting with your athletic background and how you approach your own athletic life. So we just mentioned softball, but what other sports did you play or are you drawn to? Um, I played just about everything growing up. We had (laughs) soccer, basketball, volleyball, softball. There was a little gymnastics in there. I also did debate and theater and played instruments. I mean, our parents had us doing just about anything that we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, major credit to them. They were super supportive in that way. And um, I think now, I mean, I played beach volleyball for three or four years in my twenties. Um, I, I don't know if it's a, I, mean, I, I do CrossFit, I guess I kind of do. Mm-hmm. I don't do CrossFit, but I usually train at a CrossFit gym. And so I'm still very active as an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I do quite a bit and I, I still believe firmly in training like I'm an athlete, even though I've, long since retired. So it's Mm -hmm. a huge passion of mine. It was a part of my career actually for, you know, a while there. Mm -hmm. Before I ask you more about that, I saw something on your website that intrigued me. Can you tell us how you define organic strength? Defining organic strength. Uh, That's a good question. Um, I would say that there's a man named Ido Portal and Mm -hmm. basically he does an incredible amount of body weight training and it's, it's along the lines of gymnastics, martial arts, using your body and, and um, using different implements than just weights, you know, to, to get strong because mm-hmm. you can be really strong with weights, but then, you know, your shoulder gets into a weird position where you're stretched and it's under stress. And then all of a sudden you, you um, get injured. And mm-hmm. I think that what I've really started exploring because I was a strength and conditioning coach by trade for a long time. And so that's obviously like lifting weights, mm-hmm. but there's so much more to strength. And so then I started exploring gymnastics when I kind of was introduced to the CrossFit community and my shoulders, my joints in general felt so much better because I was going through these full ranges of motion and kind of in awkward positions. And then it was strengthening my joints in those positions. And so organic strength to me is just being, it's, not the linear, okay, I'm going to lift this weight up and then I'm going to put it down. But the actual like, okay, maybe you're even doing jujitsu or something where mm-hmm. you can't really predict the, the stresses that your body is going to experience and you have to be able to adapt to just about anything. Okay, got it. Thank you for that explanation. Anytime I see something new in that field or in that you know topic, I always like to ask because you never know what's going to resonate with other people. And I just think it's it's always good to keep striving for something, you know, new, never plateau. Right. So that's interesting. What does your physical routine consist of at this time? Um, well, I mean, gosh, it's just about everything. I'm actually dealing with a little bit of an elbow issue right now from throwing. 
because I throw batting practice so much, but uh, it's a combination of weightlifting, um, hitting, swimming, uh, pool workouts. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's literally all over the place, but I would say the core is still weightlifting and conditioning, Mm -hmm. um, which that's why I say I don't do CrossFit, but I do because I do Olympic weightlifting. I've been doing that since I was an athlete. I do conditioning, like running, sprints, et cetera. And then I also do some gymnastics work, which is really more for my shoulder health than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you put those, all three of those together, that equals CrossFit. So I guess you could <laughs> consider it something like that. Mm-hmm. But I also like to get in the cages and hit because it's like, you know, I played softball in college, but that was down here 12 years ago now. So mm-hmm. it's like to get back in there and feel. And then also I competed, but as an athlete, you don't, you don't look at it from the same lens as a coach. So now I'm taking video of my swing and I'm like, oh, it's awful. Okay, how do I change this? And making, making the adjustments, you know, making the adjustments is difficult. And it just reminds you of how difficult it is to make those adjustments. So when you're coaching someone, you have a little bit more empathy of going, oh, you know, I know how this feels to go, okay, I, that felt like I did it. And then you look on video and you're like, nope, I definitely did not do that. <laughs> you know, so I think uh, hitting is not necessarily for my fitness regimen. It's more for my coaching, actually. You kind of beat me to my next question, which um, I have asked other coaches that we've had on this podcast who have athletic backgrounds, you know, what they believe gives them greater insight when it comes to working with professional athletes, given their own experiences. Um, I'm wondering, too, if you want to dive in a little bit deeper, like what are some of the biggest advantages when it comes to your athletic experience and how you're able to couple that to maximize a player's potential? Well, I'm going to take a little bit different angle here. I think the obvious ones are, well, softball is very similar to baseball, especially from the position player standpoint of hitting pitching, obviously is quite different, but from an athlete standpoint, I think the mentality and just understanding competing at a high level and then also just, um, the mental side of things. And this is really where, you know, our mutual friend, Aaron, mm-hmm. and I kind of bond is that I, my career ended because of more or less performance anxiety. And uh, all that means is really, I got so anxious when the game would start that I couldn't even throw the ball correctly, which is actually fairly common in high level baseball and softball. And it really, the way that my playing career, the way that I can relate to players is just understanding the deep um, mental issues that can really occur and mm-hmm. how much pressure you feel. It could even be at the high school level, you know, the high school level is so much pressure to get a scholarship and it's all relative. So people think, well, it's high school. What's the big deal. But to them, it's everything. It's your identity. Um, it's how you, it's how you have fun. It's where your community is. And then to lose that, whether it's an injury or, you know, mental skills thing, mm-hmm. it's devastating. So I think more so I can relate from a mental perspective, you know, and then also simply the training aspect of it and being, being able to push your body, your mind through those things and, and persevere through physical pain as well. So I think it's just like, I relate way more to the mental side of things, I think, even than the actual like competition side of things. Well, first I want to give a shout out to Erin Kafaro, who you just mentioned she was featured on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And if people haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend that they go back and do so. As you were saying, it's easy to get caught up in like the mechanics of the sport, especially when your mm-hmm. main focus is strength and conditioning. So can you describe how you approach the mental side of the game? And I actually think this brings us back to your recent travels to Australia. Um, 
Yeah, so Australia, that, uh, what an incredible opportunity. That came up because over the summer, um, after the minor league season was canceled completely, major league was going to have a short season. And over the summer, I just, like, I have so much, this is going to sound a little arrogant, but I have way more technical knowledge. I have way more knowledge of hitting than I have application, right? So mm-hmm. I've studied research and mentorship and I, I learned the Astros hitting philosophy inside and out and I understand hitting, but the application of coaching is always different, of course. So I was on a Zoom call and mm-hmm. one of our catching coaches, he said on the call, he said, Hey guys, um, one of my best friends is a coach in Australia for one of the teams. He's a head coach. And he wants to know if we have any catchers I'd like to send over. Like, do we have any for the winter league? Because there's winter leagues every single year that happen in Australia, the Dominican, Puerto Rico, Venezuela. And so my ears kind of perked up and I was like, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity for me to go coach mm-hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. Like what an opportunity. <laughs> so I basically, you know, I immediately after the call contacted that coach and I was like, hey, I know you asked for players, but do they accept coaches? Mm -hmm. We contacted them. And then before you know it, I was moving to Sydney for three months. And that Mm -hmm. was obviously, it was an incredible opportunity to be able to have those experiences during a pandemic. But also, of course, Sydney is not a place, bad place to be, you know, and so (laughs) that was wonderful on all accounts. And um, also got, was able to link up with Manny Ramirez, who is really Mm -hmm. just a gem of a human. Mm -hmm. He's just an incredible guy, Um, incredible person, but also just like, I mean, amazing to see him hit and still be able to do things that he was doing at age 48. So really cool. So the mental, the mental aspect for me, it's taken on different levels. And really when I was going through it as a player, I had no idea what was going on. Mental skills was not a thing, you know, when I, when I was going through my, my, it was a thing, but it wasn't called that. And sports psychology was still relatively very new and when I was going through my own career, I really struggled with performance anxiety. And they sent me to just the, you know, the student psychologist on campus. And, you know, we know now that that's, that probably wasn't good enough. However, kudos to my coaches even back then for just recognizing what was going on and even suggesting that to me because it was so new. So mm-hmm. I saw a psychologist. She actually diagnosed me with PTSD. And I was like, oh, yeah, PTSD. Sure. That's what soldiers get. I don't have that. And now I look back and it's like, what, 15 years later, I'm still having dreams about my coach from freshman year. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I had PTSD. Mm. I have it, I guess. So my point in saying that is now I just really understand uh, the deep need for this with athletes because athletes more or less experience some of the same things that, say, military professionals do. Of course, firefighters, first responders. It's a, there can be trauma associated mm-hmm. with this because, because of how demanding the sport is. So I just looked at, I look at it from a different lens and what I've been able to do is just find avenues through really, I would say even these, these avenues have existed for hundreds, thousands of years, maybe, but their application in sport is what is new. So yoga, breath work, right. meditation, mindfulness these concepts have been around for literally thousands of years (laughs) but the application in sport is relatively new and so really being able to bring that not only for myself Mm -hmm. but to the athletes that I work with is huge and also just to work in them with the mental skills professionals that we have I think they really appreciate my my um, I'll say knowledge and appreciation of their area 
to that end, I don't think a conversation about the mental side of the game of baseball could be complete without any attention to processes versus outcomes. So Mm -hmm. how hard is it to get your players to adopt that axiom in an environment where so much of their future, meaning like contracts, promotions to higher levels and playing time is contingent on performance outcomes? I honestly think it's easier than ever because of technology, because in practice, it used to just be the only way that you have to measure yourself or what you're doing is in a game. But Mm -hmm. now, because we have all of this technology where you're able to measure your performance in practice, we can actually drive their attention towards the numbers and the outcomes in practice, which creates a better training environment. So it's easier than ever where it used to be like, well, uh, let's try this and we'll see if it works a game. But there's so many external factors and maybe you hit the ball hard, but you get out. And so like you're, let's say a player is over four on the night, but he had four line drives. Well, it still kind of feels crappy until you go, well, actually, you had four line drives. You hit them 110 miles an hour. That's ex- extremely elite, but you just hit them right too, guys. Mm-hmm. So having technology that we can take those metrics where we think these metrics are important in a, in a game situation, but then we go, okay, well, if we want you to do this in a game, we can actually see if you're doing it in practice. Mm-hmm. So I think it's actually easier than ever to have out to have a excuse me, process-driven goals for these guys mm-hmm. before they get into a game. Um, so that we know what they're doing in practice, if their practice is quality, if they need to improve certain things. It's just, in my opinion, easier than ever to do that because we have objective information from technology that we can use in practice. I love your optimistic, I guess, for lack of a better word, thought process when it comes to technology. And (laughs) I, (laughs) I really do. And I think this is a good segue into a discussion about your approach to lifelong learning. So do you mind telling us more about your specific academic studies and what prompted you to focus on the disciplines that you did? Because once we finish this, I'm excited to talk about some of the research that you've been involved in. Basically, my studies, uh, my undergrad was exercise science, my master's was sports administration, but I, I like to say sometimes that my undergrad was softball and my master's was strength and conditioning at LSU. And the studies were, were just kind of a vehicle for those learning experiences. And then more recently, I think this is such a great piece of uh, advice for any young professional. But I really, you know, I, my second master's degree was biomechanics and statistics. And all that really means is just like it's a fancy, fancy way to say math and, and measuring and research. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, that was that that was my first time. I like to say that was my first time I actually went to school where it's not that I got bad <laughs> grades before and I got great grades and I did fine, but I kind of was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, okay, I was, I passed my classes and I didn't really pay attention because my real learning was happening as a division one athlete. And then at, at LSU, my real learning was happening with my full-time job as a strength and conditioning coach at LSU. I mean, that was incredible learning for my career. So my second master's degree, biomechanics and statistics, that really was born out of, I had spent three years with the Astros and the Astros, for anyone listening, um, the Astros are really well known in the industry for being super far ahead with technology and, and data-driven approaches to practice and performance. And I was really lucky to be in that organization when they were going through all of that. And I just was seeing this happen. And I'm like, man, this is an indicator for where the industry is headed Mm-hmm. And even 10 years out of my degree, I knew that basically my degree wasn't obsolete, 
But I mean, we were dealing with like basic heart rate monitors and, and, you know, like stopwatches as the best technology out there. And just the world has completely changed. So I was like, okay, what, what's related to performance nowadays? And that's a lot of technology research data Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had to throw myself into that if I wanted to keep up with the times and also just looking 10 years down the road, what's going to be happening. So that's really why I decided to go back to school. That's a lot why I have this perspective of a data-driven approach to training. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, funny enough, it kind of counteracts my other passion within performance, which is mental skills and getting away from data and getting away from technology and <laughs> being mindful. But I do think there is a happy medium and there's a balance that you can really strike you know, if you just have value in both. Right. But I have to ask, especially knowing <laughs> your position now, like in 2018, for people who don't know, you accepted a position as the skills acquisition coach with the Dutch mm-hmm. national team in softball and baseball. And while in Amsterdam, you worked with one of the lead researchers in the world when it comes to eye tracking and mm-hmm. vision. So right. can you describe the research you worked on? Yeah, so the the position with the Dutch national team was a kind of an apprenticeship, if you will, when I was getting my second master's degree, which is part of why I even went there is because I knew I'd be able to cross over to hitting. While I was there, another reason why I went to Amsterdam is because the leading researcher in the world in eye tracking for hitters is there at the school that I went to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people miss that detail. They're like, why'd you go to Europe? I'm like, well, plenty of really good reasons. So I got my first little dip in my toes into being a hitting coach. And then secondly, because that researcher was there and I just knew that they had a heavy emphasis on eye tracking, mostly in cricket, actually, because that's the popular, you know, that's the popular right. sport in Europe and Australia. So eye tracking came up because my, um, my current boss, Dylan Lawson, also my mentor really guided me in that and let me know that um, eye tracking was kind of the way that he was going and that he thought that the industry is going mm-hmm. and most people are looking at mechanics and swing mechanics, which I'm also looking at with my background in strength and conditioning. He's really looking at plate discipline and pitch recognition and what are the eyes doing and how can we train that more importantly for our hitters? So that's kind of where that came from. Um, so I dove into that and was fortunate to go to driveline baseball in Seattle and do my research for six months there, which that research at the time had never been done um, on pitchers, live pitchers throwing to live hitters who were wearing glasses, tracking their eye movements and what they were looking at. You don't have to give away too much when I ask this next question, (laughs) but I have to ask, what did the research tell you about decisions being made in the batter's box? Um, Yeah, general principles. And I would say like if very well confirmed what's kind of already out there in research all the 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 research the research is small um Mm -hmm. there's not that many articles but there's enough articles to make some really broad suggestions that basically hitters are not watching the ball you know they're making predictions based off of early ball movement which means that elite level hitters actually don't need to watch the ball hit the bat to hit it so the old adage of like hey keep your eye on the ball Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> but, but, and, and also like when you're young, yes, because the ball is moving slow enough for you to actually track it. Whereas as we get up to the higher levels, major league baseball guys don't have time to, to move their eyes that fast. So they're not even tracking the ball all the way to the bat. 
So that's really kind of a, a broad overview. They're making predictions of where the ball is going to be based off of right. the pitcher's movements and really, really early ball flight. Um, and mm-hmm. we're, we're doing this. Uh, we are doing this all day long. Think about when you are, let's say, making a left-hand turn at a traffic light. Mm-hmm. You're predicting when the car is going to pass and it's safe for you to go. We do it all the time. So we're basically able to see objects moving and how fast they're moving. And then we kind of make these internal calculations that will allow us to do things safely. Let's say you're playing with your kid and they toss you a ball. You don't really have to look at that ball. It's not like you track the ball all the way to your hand. You just make a prediction of where it's going to be and you stick your hand out. So I think that's, you know, that's enough. That should be enough that if somebody's interested in it, you can go and dive in yourself. There's plenty of research out there, mostly in cricket a little bit in baseball and it's quite interesting. It's absolutely fascinating when like historic decision-making models are nullified given, Mm -hmm. you know, modern science. Yep. I want to note that Dylan Lawson also said you were already a natural hitting coach in your role with the Astros because they'd come to you for insight, even though you were the strength and conditioning coordinator at the time. And after everything we just went over, I think it just speaks volumes to your mindset and your holistic approach to coaching athletes. So while doing mm-hmm. research for this interview, I read the following in your bio, and it says, by trade, I'm a hitting coach, but in reality, I'm a student, athlete, minimalist, feminist, and nomad. I've lived in 15 cities in the past 12 years. I've visited nine countries in the past year, and I just moved to Tampa to start a new job with the Yankees as a minor league hitting coach. So my takeaway Mm -hmm. is there seems to be a general association today between professional athletes and coaches and material excess, yet you identify as a minimalist. So what is it about minimalism that resonates with you? And do you think it has helped you to advance and improve as a professional coach? Oh, yes. I think at first it was at first it kind of happens by accident when you move a lot. Yeah. Because first of all, you just don't want to have a lot of stuff. And you're like, (laughs) I can't, you know, every time you move, it's it's just annoying. Mm -hmm. But also like when I, every time I move, I, I like dig into my closet and I'm like, God, I haven't worn this for a year. Why do I even have it? You know, and I just did that. And I, it's a cleanse. Every time I do that, it's yeah. a cleanse. I just moved back to Tampa. I just got here for spring training. And I kind of had a couple of bins uh, that I left here for the past six months, really, is the last time I was here in Tampa. And I looked in the bin. And I go, what? I, did, I literally forgot that I had some of these things in my possessions. Why am I possibly keeping this? So I took a big bin of things to the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. And it's a cleansing process to have fewer things you have less clutter yeah. and it's also the keeping up with the Joneses, right? I need all this new stuff. You don't need it. And like, I think that it happened on accident at first and now I'm very, very intentional about it. Mm-hmm. And I think just traveling across the world, moving across the world will teach you that. I moved to Australia with three suitcases. I moved to Europe with three suitcases. Mm-hmm. If, we, if, you, if I moved with three suitcases, what in the world do I need? And of course, you know, if you have a family of furniture, you, you know, of course these things happen. But I think just moving so much, it teaches you how little you really need. Mm-hmm. And then after I kind of developed this mantra on accident, I started seeking out opportunities. For example, um, I lived in Laos for three weeks in a village. And these, I mean, these people have nothing. Like they have less 
less than one suitcase full of things in their entire possession. Mm-hmm. And you just think, wow, like what, what do we actually need these things for? Is it because we need them or is it because it's some social standard that we're living up to? So realistically, like, I'm just like everyone else. I have AirPods right now, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> carrying an iPhone. I've got Lululemon leggings on. I'm just like everyone else, but I think I probably have fewer things than other people. And I put less in them. And I think that is a necessity when you work in a field like professional sports, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. it's the world of excess. It's the world of money and mm-hmm. status and social media. And I, by the way, I'm on social media, but just to give you an idea of how I manage it, I actually delete the app off of my phone every single day. So I get on there to post and that's it. <laughs> and like, but I'll, because, because I'm just like everyone else. And today I posted this morning and then I didn't, I didn't take the app off my phone. I just forgot. And I all of a sudden noticed I'm like opening the app. How many people liked my fit photo? How mm-hmm. many, you know, whatever. And I just, I deleted it like an hour ago and I was like, God, what am I doing? This is, I'm right, right. back in the trap. So I don't keep cookies in my pocket for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I don't keep social media on my phone yeah. because it just, dest- just destroys your mental clarity. And I think it's a positive thing, just like I think cookies are a positive thing. <laughs> but I also don't, but I, if I ate cookies all day, I'd be sick. And I think social media is the exact same way. And so mm-hmm. just really finding little ways to really know your true identity without anything else, which is a really hard thing to do these days, especially if you work in professional athletics, mm-hmm. if you're a professional athlete, people are going to tie your identity to your logo, whether you do or not. Mm-hmm. I, I may not, I don't tie my identity to a logo. But every time a podcast happens, it's like, how is it to be a Yankees hitting coach? I'm like, well, I'm Rachel, you know, but mm-hmm. I understand that there are certain identities that are going to be attached to me, but I don't mm-hmm. have to attach myself to them. Mm-hmm. Just an observation. If you're someone who follows that lifestyle and that mindset, I think what it does is it opens up bandwidth, right? Like mm-hmm. you're able to just mentally accept more in your life, uh, tackle mm-hmm. more things. I, I think it's great. Um, I'd have to ask you, you know, since you're traveling so much, what are some of your favorite books or favorite podcasts? I know I get, I, you think I have a better answer to this because you weren't <laughs> asked this all the time, but, um, one, just, I'll just talk like recently. So my goals are to be in the front office and administrative positions. And so I'm fascinated by business. Um, and the art of business. And so one of the things I'm listening to recently is a podcast called Business Done Differently. And it's by Jesse Cole. He's the owner of a kind of unknown but known baseball team. It's called the Savannah Bananas. Mm -hmm. And they are a college summer team. And what's fantastic about Jesse is that he, I mean, basically treats the baseball game like a circus show. And he's like, okay, people sometimes think baseball is boring. So they won't come for baseball itself, but they will come for entertainment. And he's actually managed to sell out every single event for the past three years. And that's really hard for even a major league team to do. So the fact that he's doing that at any level in a community is is really impressive. So he has a Mm -hmm. podcast and he just does a phenomenal job of having people on that are doing things differently, truly in their industries. So business done differently is one podcast I would recommend. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, so just go with the most recent book that I read that I really love. It's Creating Magic, which is um, it's Lee Cockrell, who's uh, the former executive vice president of Disney, Walt Disney World in Orlando. And wow, just a really phenomenal read for any leader or anyone who wants to be in leadership. 
mm-hmm. I took so many things away from that. So I'll just go with the most recent, <laughs> my most recent favorites. Safe, but I think also very inspiring. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. At this point in the conversation, I think we've fleshed out Lawson's earlier statement about your being as qualified or overqualified as anyone in your position. But do you think you have added pressure on you because you're a woman in your position? Oh, I 100% do. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I don't think it's a think. It's a factual yes. Mm-hmm. I have more pressure on me, um, mm-hmm. which is fine. It's it's something I signed up for it. I was pretty aware from the get uh, that that's how it was from, you know, back in 2012, 13, when I was having issues getting in. Yeah, of course, mm-hmm. there's extra pressure, there's extra eyes. And I mean, it's it's not always fun in the moment, but I appreciate it in the long run. And more and more, I'm able to appreciate it in the moment and go, okay, well, this is my chance to change people's minds. And it's an honor to have that responsibility. How do you go about building relationships with players who initially view you as being different or players who might be skeptical or cynical or resistant to working with you? Or do you even find that you experience that? Um, I do. And it's Mm -hmm. sometimes it's more obvious than, than others. Um, But yeah, I, I definitely do experience that. And I mean, really, it's just like anyone else, right? Like I, I, well, it's not just like anyone else, but it's, it's very common. Like, basically, I just have to earn their respect over time. Mm-hmm. I think I just, it just takes me longer to earn their respect than say, if there was a coach who played in the big leagues for 10 years and is a six, four Hulk of an athlete, um, he walks in the room and receives respect immediately. And everything I do is questioned. And so, but, and that's, it's, again, it's like, that's fine. I mm-hmm. would rather have it that way. I'd rather have to earn respect than just have it handed to me and, and never really know if people are respecting me for the job I'm doing or if it's my title or my athletic prowess. So I think it's an advantage. And again, sometimes in the moment, it doesn't always feel good. But I think that it really just comes down to building a relationship from the personal side um, and just pushing them, at, you know, like pushing the athlete getting them to do uh, what I, sorry, I shouldn't say like that. I should say um, identifying their specific objectives that they need to work on Mm -hmm. and helping them to get to those goals. And when they do get to those goals, they're, you know, that's when you really get their respect. So I always say that respect doesn't come from your gender, your race, you know, not even your title. It comes from your actions and, and who you are as a person. I love that. I know you're very passionate about being a mentor for others, so who are some of the people who've made the biggest impact on your career and that you look up to? Oh, um, I would say like early thoughts. Oh God, there's so many early <laughs> thoughts. Like when I was very first getting in, Sue Falsoni, um, she was a physical therapist for the Dodgers. She was hired in 2007. And, um, you know, we, we haven't, we still don't even talk that much. Now I'm connected to her, but when I found out that the Dodgers hired a woman, even though it wasn't a strength coach, I was enamored and I was like obsessed with Sue. I was like, who is this person? I tried to listen to every podcast, every, every YouTube video I could and social media wasn't a thing back then. So I just had to like stalk her, you know, and I just remember back and it was so impactful for me that I can remember the moment I found out it was like so poignant. So I would say Sue was somebody that I thought about early, early on. We're talking about female athletes, Brandy mm-hmm. Chastain, 
the 99ers, female athletes that I saw on TV um, that inspired me. And then just, you know, in, in more recent times, it's been incredible to really gain mentors as I go along, um, mm-hmm. as these things happen. And for example, Jessica Mendoza, the broadcaster for ESPN mm-hmm. has been a huge, you know, ear for me, mm-hmm. um, and other women who like the, the still pretty small group of us that now have been in sports for 10 plus years in one way or another. Um, and it's been incredible to receive support from them. Everyone you just mentioned has an incredible story. So what do you hope people take away from hearing your story and the positive contributions that you're making to professional baseball? Well, there's the general, you know, there's the general like, okay, just hopefully just me being around is a visible idea for what's possible. Mm -hmm. But what I really would like to message and what I'm trying to get out more is, you know, there's a lot of, there's so much talk about diversity now and we need more diversity and we need more women. We need more minorities. And um, part of me says, okay, that's great. Part of me says, but let's reframe that and not just say, oh, we need more minorities. That's not really, that's not really all of it. You know, that's just a part of it. And I think that we need to reframe that and say, okay, yeah, we need more minorities, but how are we going to get there? And the answer, in my opinion, is not just, oh, well, organizations, they're discriminating and they need to hire more people, but also women need to apply and they need to be, you know, we need qualified women that want to be in sports. And that's a much deeper issue. And Mm -hmm. it's a much more long-term solution than just an organization just plucking the next woman they see and putting her in a role, which long-term doesn't really do much good, you know, Mm -hmm. but overall, we need, we need more women to be interested. When I was a coordinator, so I was a coordinator for four years of my eight seasons. And out of those four years, I would say, you know, I might've received a couple thousand resumes. Mm-hmm. I would guess like less than 10 of those thousands were from women. Mm-hmm. So before we say, oh, we need to put more women in, in these positions, we need to really look at, well, are you even receiving? <laughs> out of the hundreds of resumes that you received, Right. Did you receive even one for a coaching position from mm-hmm. a woman? Did you? Because mm-hmm. I, I would bet, I would bet less than five years ago, that answer was absolutely not. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a much deeper issue than just, Oh, these, these organizations, they just want to keep women out. Well, but women aren't even applying. And then you've got to go, well, why are they not applying? Well, yeah, of course you need women in positions to create visibility. So women feel like they're capable, mm-hmm. but also what about how, what about, you know, when these female athletes, when these, especially softball players for baseball, when these softball players are in college, did we even talk to them about a career path in coaching mm-hmm. in baseball? Is that even a mention or is it just softball, softball, softball? So it's a, it's a bit, it's a much deeper and much more complicated answer than just, well, these organizations, they just need to hire women and, you know, they're just, they're just sexist. It's like, well, yeah, that could be true, mm-hmm. but it's top down and it's also bottom up. Mm-hmm. Jason Bresler is the founder of Leadership Under Fire and obviously a huge baseball fan. And he sent me a few rapid fire questions. Um, Sure. The first one is greatest hitter of all time, in your opinion. The second is like most underrated hitter in Major League Baseball at present. The third is rising Major League hitter who is destined for greatness and then sort of uh, easy on the last one major league baseball park. That's your favorite outside of Yankee stadium. 
Okay, uh, let's start with, yeah, the, the best hitter of all time, I think, was one of them. Um, I'll go, I mean, I was going to say best hitter of all time. I'm, I'm super biased, but I will go with Manny Ramirez. And I, I will say that because of it, the longevity of his career. Yeah. And also seeing him at age 48, I, like yeah. the fact that he is still in shape and able to do what he was able to do that I saw in Sydney. Um, I mean, I, I'm just going to, I'm a little bit biased, but also <laughs> I think by the numbers, not too many people would disagree with that. Um, he's obviously on the Hall of Fame ballot, but who knows if yeah. he'll get in because because of his uh, because of his uh, past with a few suspensions. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so uh, I will all go with Manny for that one. I would say the most. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna mash these two together. The most underrated, or the you know the rising star. I'm gonna go with Luke Voigt. So I'm a mm-hmm. little bit biased. First of all, he plays for the Yankees, and also secondly, I met Luke when he was a rookie with the Cardinals and I was a strength and conditioning coach for him when he was with the Cardinals and that guy worked so hard, incredible, incredible, uh, human being, low mm-hmm. round draft pick, no money. And he's really just made his debut in the past couple of years here. And he's already, you know, he's already doing very well. So I don't think he's necessarily that underrated, but I do think, I'm not sure if people realize just how good he is because he's kind of nondescript mm-hmm. and I think, he's going to be an absolute I think he's going to be a long uh, multiple all-star so I'll go with Luke Foyt um favorite major league ballpark okay besides the Yankees which probably I haven't even been to Yankee Stadium so I will <sighs> I will take that one I, I really do like St. Louis you know mm-hmm. I, I don't know why it's a I think the area around the stadium and the not the um, arch in the background at night I think that's just a really beautiful park, which I think is, uh, you know, I think that might surprise some people. But, yeah, I'll go with St. Louis. I can't wait to see what the future holds for you. (laughs) So much food for thought. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, yeah. We'll see. I'm so happy we got to catch up today and we got to know you better and um, I think explore some of the ways that you think about things. And I'm appreciative of humanizing the narrative the way that you have. So thank you for being so generous with all of your insight. Um, This was really lovely and I think very valuable. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, the interest and I'm so glad that Erin connected us. (laughs) Me too. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.